This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Welcome everybody to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys on Eric Carlson and their keeper pools. I am your host, Elon Dubrovsky, and I have a really fun 31 Beats interview to present to you today. I had a really great chat with Charlie O'Connor, who's the lead Flyers writer at The Athletic. We talked about a ton of Philadelphia Flyers players. He had a bunch of great insights. I know you're going to love this interview, so stay tuned for that. But before we get there, let's of course mention that this podcast, Keeping Carlson, is presented by DauberHockey.com, the number one fantasy hockey website out there. Every day, you know, when I do one of these interviews, then I go to record this and I take a look at Dauber Hockey to see what's out. It's always like a whole bunch of brand new articles just being churned out every single day. There's a Daily Ramblings that just came out by Ian Gooding. We got Frozen Tools Forensic Power Play Opportunities, digging into some power play stats by Chris Kane. Like everything you need for fantasy hockey. You want to stay up to date with what's going on in the league and a bunch of insights into how players did over this past season, just like we're trying to do with this podcast. Check it out at DauberHockey.com and of course the tools that I use to prep the show over at Frozen Tools are invaluable but okay with that I will stop my blabbering and cut to my great interview with Charlie O'Connor hope you like it Okay, everybody, really excited to bring you this upcoming interview. I've got a treat for you because we have the lead writer at The Athletic for the Philadelphia Flyers. He's been covering the Flyers since 2011, so he knows his stuff. Welcome to the show, Charlie O'Connor. Hey, it's, uh, it's great to be on. Thanks for, uh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk about the Flyers. When I was prepping this episode, I was like going through the team and all of the players, and there was just so many people that I'm going to want to ask you about. So I'll do my best to squeeze as much in as I can. But this is like a very interesting team, both in terms of like strong, you know, veteran players who have been great for a while, and then all these new young players that we want to figure out if they're going to be good or bad moving forward. But first, let's focus on the team. Uh, it's been a really strange couple seasons, right? In 2018-19, it's like a rough season for the Flyers. They were a middle-of-the-pack team offensively, but like really struggled to keep the puck out of their own net. They went through eight goalies throughout the season. Everyone pretty much sucked, except for Carter Hart, who we'll get to. And that was a reason to be hopeful going into this season, because finally they had Carter Hart. It's like, okay, Philly now has a goalie. Maybe things will be good. But things weren't only good. They were amazing. Like, Philly flourished this year. By the time of the pause, they were riding a nine-game winning streak that Tuka Rask broke 
choke in the final game. He shut them out on March 10th, but they ended the season with a 41-21-7 record. Good for fourth in the East. They're going to have a bye in this upcoming playoffs if it actually happens. Uh, so before we dig into specific players, I've got to ask, like, what caused this huge change between the two seasons? Was it just Carter Hart? Was it gritty? Or like, what was the change of the Flyers? Yeah, there was a lot. It, you know, one thing you do have to remember about 2018-2019 with the Flyers is that if you're looking for a Murphy's Law year, that was it. And it's not just the goalies, though obviously if you're if you have a season where you use eight goalies, you're probably not a very good team. But uh but they also restructured the entire organization midway through the year. You know, in in late November, Ron Hextall was fired as general manager. A few weeks later, Dave Hextall was fired as head coach. There was just a feeling for like really a two month period where no one on the team felt safe. And it was just a state of like borderline chaos really like players were terrified they were going to get shipped out you know members of the staff were afraid they were going to get fired because they were too close to Ron Hextall and they were they were sending everybody out you had Chuck Fletcher take over midseason so everybody was trying to get get used to the new GM it was just one of those years where like the Flyers I never think were that bad like they weren't as bad as their 2018-19 record would have anybody believe. It was just a year where, like, if you're looking at like I guess like a bell curve, it was like the worst possible outcome going into the year. That's what they got because the injuries with the goalies, the organizational turmoil. They had a couple guys that underachieved, but really, I would say it was the goalies and the organiza- organizational turmoil that really killed them. So they definitely are better this year, without a doubt. They're a better team. They're deeper. They're far better coached now that Elaine Vigneault is coaching and Dave Haxel isn't. But it also just boils down to the fact that last year was like the low end of all their possible outcomes. This year is probably on the high end, so it looks even more dramatic. Um, But I don't think last year's team on paper was terrible. They were flawed, sure, and they they weren't a cup contender. But they they probably were a borderline playoff team last year. They were just a borderline playoff team that had everything that could possibly go wrong go wrong to. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So it's like last year, they weren't so bad, which I guess, like you say, makes sense. And goaltending definitely sunk them. This year, they have Carter Hart. And maybe they also got some luck in places where they had bad luck last year. At this point, is Carter Hart, like, I just imagine him as being like the most beloved guy in Philly right now, because it just feels like forever for me since Philly's had a goalie that they can rely on. I remember my co-host, Brian, used to talk about Steve Mason as like this like great goalie. And then people would always be like, what are you talking about? Steve Mason sucks. And that, that's a whole other debate, which I guess you could comment <laughs> on because you've been covering the team for so long. But like, it seems like forever since Philly's had this like great goalie and Carter Hart's he's only 21 years old he's going to be their number one goalie for years to come like how much is he a hero in the city at this point I mean people people really want to believe when it comes to Carter Hart I think that's maybe the only thing that's keeping him from being unbelievably popular is that Philadelphia Flyers fans have been burned so many times on goalies that were supposed to be the guy you know you're talking for the last 25 years you know Brian Boucher, Roman Chekmonik, Steve Mason. They had we had Sergei Bobrovsky for a year. Ilya Brizgalov. Like, there's so many goalies that for a little bit looked like they were the answer, and then it just ended up not working out for one reason or another. At least in Philadelphia. So that maybe is the only thing that's keeping fans from just falling, you know, head over heels in love with Carter Hart. But trust me, he's he's beloved. I mean, people think he's the answer. They want to believe he's the answer. He's really, you know, checked every box so far. Not many goalies, not many young goalies are at the level that Carter Hart is at so far at this age in the NHL. You know, generally speaking, teams call up goalies late. And the fact that Hart already at age 21 is an above average NHL starting goalie is kind of ridiculous. And it's really 
basically unprecedented in in today's day and age with the way that goalies are treated by by organizations, the way goalie development paths tend to work. So there's a hope and closing it on an expectation that Carter Hart is actually going to be that good. But there's also just a feeling that we've been burned so many times we don't want to go all in and fully trust. But trust me, fans want to. They 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 want to love this guy. <laughs> It's funny because it seems like Philly did want to go the traditional route and like ease Carter Hart in. But then last year, like, you know, they went through goalie after goalie after goalie. At some point, everyone was dead and they had to bring Carter Hart in. And now like he's made it impossible for them to send him down. And I know he's beloved in the fantasy community. I just did a dynasty league draft where people like draft teams of players that they're going to hold for like years and years. And uh, Vasilevsky was the first goalie that went, then Connor Hellebuck and then Carter Hart. So he's right up there. That's the first. But it was also salary cap. So obviously that kept Bobrovsky and Carey Price and guys like that from getting taken but yeah uh Hart I don't really have any other questions for you about him so I just wanted to throw him out at the beginning he's <laughs> someone who like with goalies in general no one ever knows I wanted to start by asking you about Claude Giroux getting to the players now because he's somewhat like the team overall had this great year but Giroux is one player who at least stats wise seems to have had a down year like he had that monster 101 point season a, a couple seasons ago 2017-18 and then we expected him to fall down to earth a bit after that and he did he fell to 85 points in 2018-19 which was still great but then in his this recent season, his age 32 season, Giroux sat with only 35 points through 54 games at February 6th, that, which is only a 53-point pace. And if that mark would have held, that would have been his lowest point pace in like over 10 years. And then luckily or thankfully, like something's flipped right near the end. In his final 15 games, he put up 18 points. That brought him to a more reasonable 63-point pace on the year. Uh, but what was going on with Giroux for that first three quarters of the season to lead him to be performing so much lower than what he's normally capable of doing? And then I guess the follow-up is like, what triggered that turnaround right at the end? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because these sort of things, I feel like, because I do a lot of player analysis, and a lot of times there isn't, like, a set reason why this sort of thing happens. You know, a guy's playing not that great, and then he flips a switch, and he starts playing great, and then you're, you're trying to figure out reasons as to why that happened, and you have theories, but they're not clear-cut, and you don't know for sure. With Claude Giroux, it makes my job really easy. Because it's very obvious why he got going and why he was struggling a little bit, at least offensively, in the first you know three quarters or so of the year. So basically what happened with him this season, and this all really goes back in my mind to the Nolan Patrick uh, migraine disorder, the fact that he hasn't played a game. So the Flyers went into the season figuring that our top-line center is Sean Couturier, our second-line center is Kevin Hayes, who they went out and signed in the offseason. Our third-line center is Nolan Patrick. That's Those are our centers. And one of the big reasons why they targeted Kevin Hayes and gave him that massive contract was the idea that Claude Giroux is a winger now. He's best on the wing. Last year, they had had to use him at center sometimes because they just didn't have anybody else to use. But by getting... Kevin Hayes, that allowed them to just say, okay, Drew's, is, Drew's a wing. He's a wing for the rest of his career. He's great there. That works. Well, with Nolan Patrick injured, they kind of were bouncing Drew around the lineup. And to Drew's credit, like he's a leader. He's a team guy. He never once complained, even though he's acknowledged that he's a better winger now than center. But he spent a decent amount of time at center. Like there was a time he was centering. Um, he was on a line with, um, with Morgan Frost when he got called up. He was on lines with other people. So he had some time at center. And then even when he wasn't playing center, 
he didn't spend a lot of time with Sean Couture, which has become this dynamic duo in Philly where when they play together, they just play to their strengths so well. Not only is there a lot of chemistry, it's just, it's a logical fit. You know, Couture is this great two-way center who can do the little things that Giroux maybe could do five, six years ago, but can't do anymore. And then Giroux can cheat a little bit offensively and, and create for himself because he knows Couture has got his back. Well, they basically were asking Giroux in the first two-thirds or so of the year to do everything he was doing before, either at center or at wing, but not with Sean Couturier. And that, I think, was a lot of the reason why his, uh, you know, his, his offensive numbers weren't as good. In addition to this, and this, this had nothing to do with like strategy. This was just, in my mind, a dumb move. So Claude Giroux, for an entire decade, has been one of the best power play forwards in hockey. He's, it's always been where he racks up a ton of his points. And he's done it in one spot, on the left side of the formation, functioning as like the pivot, the power play quarterback who sets everything up. Well, for whatever reason, this year, and it started, actually started last year, but I think everybody figured they were going to bring it back to the way it should have been this year, they had Giroux on the right side of the power play for most of the year. And it was kind of a disaster. Like, the Flyers' power play was legitimately the team's biggest weakness in the first half of the season. And it was just so, like, counterintuitive. Like, you have one of the best power play forwards in this era of hockey, and you're putting him in a spot that he's not comfortable playing in. And it was insane to me that they they stuck with it as long as they did. But in in the beginning of February, there was a game down in um, in D.C. where they played the Capitals. And I'll never forget it because I went down for the game, and I had just written an article talking about, like, they should ditch this Drew on the right side experiment and bring him back to the left where we know he's good. Well, that game, it was right after they got blown out by, I believe, the Devils. So they were going to make some changes. And that game... Giroux was back on the left side of the power play, and he was back on a line with Sean Couturier. And that's exactly when this flipping of the switch happened. It's like all you needed to do was put Giroux back in the situations where he was most likely to succeed, and what do you know? He's back to being a point-per-game player. (laughs) So legitimately, it is, in my mind, that simple in that for the first half of the year, they were trying to—they were—they were— intentionally or not, making Claude Giroux's life unnecessarily difficult, arguably for the good of the team, at least at even strength— but that final month or so, they're like, all right, we'll put Drew back in the situations where he should succeed and hopefully start succeeding. And what do you know? He started succeeding. But I'm not terribly concerned about like him dropping off dramatically. Number one, because when he was put back in the situations where he should succeed, he did. Number two, even during the first two and a half, like, like two-thirds of the season, when the offensive numbers weren't there, his underlying numbers were still really good at even strength. Like, this actually, if you look at his, uh, his performance by, uh, like, RAPM and all the, um, you know, all the, all the models and whatnot, this is, like, maybe, like, his second, third, or fourth best play-driving season of his career. So if those numbers wow. were dropping off, I'd start to worry that he's starting to fall off as a player. But the fact that he was continuing to push play in the right direction – Despite the fact that he didn't spend a ton of time, at least in the first two thirds of the year, with Sean Couturier, to me that just leads me to believe that he's still very good. Now maybe he's dropping off a bit because he's in his early thirties and that happens, but I'm not. I'm not worried about Claude Giroux, and that was a very long-winded way to explain that. But the short the short answer is I'm not worried about Claude Giroux. 
Okay, well, no, I really appreciate the explanation. And now at this point, it feels like this guy's going to be a steal in fantasy next year because you're going to look at his overall season numbers. It looks like a down year. But if he's going to, A, potentially have Nolan Patrick back, which means that he's locked in with Couturier, where you're saying he succeeds, and hopefully they've learned their lesson about this power play thing. Uh, yeah, sounds like he could just get back to being a point-per-game player, just like he was the previous season and at the end of this year. So that's great to hear. And you know, normally when I do these team overviews with the different beat writers, uh, I like to start with the you know the top scoring player and kind of work my way down in this case i didn't i cheated i did Giroux first even though he was actually fourth in team scoring this year i don't know if people will be able to guess the listeners here take a second see if you can figure it out but the leading scorer for the flyers this year was travis konechny he led the team in both goals and points 24 goals 61 points in 66 games that's a 76 point pace if he had played a full 82 game season so Konechny, definitely someone I want to get your take on. He was drafted 24th overall back in 2015. He showed glimpses of being like a potential future star. He had some great runs playing with Giroud and Couturier over the previous two seasons. But I guess his season was kind of capped at around 50 points because he was never on the top power play. It was always like Simmons or JVR ahead of him. So, you know, we're looking at like eight power play points. It's hard to become like a 60 plus point player. But I guess, again, a f- switch got flipped. Like in 2019-20, Coach Vigneault clearly decided that Konechny needed to be on the top power play ahead of James Van Riemsdyk, and Konechny responded 23 points on the man advantage compared to only eight the year before, even with so many fewer games played. So is it fair to assume at this point that Konechny is a lock for the top power play moving forward? Because if that's the case, I feel like the 76-point pace he put up this year may just be scratching the surface of what we can expect from this guy. Like, what a great season once he had the opportunity. Yeah, yeah, the the power play is interesting because one of the reasons why I was skeptical that Konechny was going to have this big breakout that he ended up having was entirely because of the power play. Because he was always on power play too. And part of the reason he was always on power play too is because the handedness never really made sense for him to be on power play one. Because if you looked at it, like... JBR is obviously the, you know, the the net front guy. So he was going to be the net front guy, at least you thought in your head. Giroux was the guy on the, you know, on the left side as a righty shot. You had Voracek on the other side. And if Giroux was on the left side, then the guy in the middle to do one-timers had to be a lefty shot. Connecting is a righty shot. So that wasn't his spot. Obviously, he wasn't going to play the point like a defenseman. So the question was, how do you get him on that top power play unit? Well, this year, he got off to a great start. He actually scored a, a quite a few points on the second power play unit, which was a, a major change of pace because the Flyers' second power play unit for years has been atrocious. So that was big. He had this great start at even strength. And then finally, JBR had been struggling on the power play to finish. And they decided it was again, it was around that like time in February where they finally figured out a power play mix that worked. And they actually started using Konechny as the net front guy. And they do it in like a hybrid way where sometimes he pops down and works below the goal line, which I think is really cool. And it worked really well. And I can't say for certain that they're definitely going to keep him on the power on power play one because like he's a small guy. He's not necessarily the ideal net front guy like a JVR, like a Wayne Simmons obviously was for years. But I think they realize that Travis Konechny is one of the three most talented forwards four at worst most talented forwards on the team right now. And if you're trying to construct a, a great power play one, you ideally want all those guys on your top power play unit. So yeah. <laughs> to to me, 
even though there's still not like a perfect fit for Travis Konechny, it's almost like you have to figure out a way. And they did kind of figure out a way in the second half of the year. So maybe they're just going to stick with it. But even if they don't, you have to believe that Konechny is going to get more opportunities moving forward than he did before this season, because quite simply, he's earned them. He's been a great even strength scorer for years. Now he showed that he can produce on the power play. So it's like you kind of have to move heaven and earth to make sure he's getting those opportunities to score because now you know he can. Yeah, I'm really excited to see what the future holds for Konechny. Like, what do you think about, like, the next couple of years? Like, he just had the 76-point pace season. Do you think he's on the precipice of, like, some Giroux-like seasons, like, point per game or higher? Or do you think, like, maybe he over, not overperformed, but, like, fairly performed this year and expecting even more might be being a bit greedy? Um, I kind of, I, I've, I've been asked this question before. My view of Konechny is I think he's going to sort of take over from a production standpoint. He's going to be, like, Voracek-ish, where... His, his floor is going to be like in like the 60 to 65 point range. And then he'll probably blow up a couple times and give you a point per game season. If, you know, his shooting percentage is elevated, he's on a line with Couturier and Giroux or whoever the, the top weapons of the team are. And I, I don't know if I see him ever being like a hundred point guy. I don't know if he has that consistency. I don't know if he's that dynamic, although he is very dynamic. But I kind of see him sliding right into where Voracek was for years, which is that like, you know, his bad seasons aren't that bad and his great seasons are like really freaking good yeah that's very interesting and actually it leads me to my next question because yeah being like Voracek would be great and one of the big reasons I assume why Voracek's had such a great career with Philly is because of all that time playing with Claude Giroux and some of his best seasons and I'm curious like, do we have a sense right now of what Vigneault wants to do at even strength with a full healthy team you know he's got Konechny who had that success with Giroux and Couturier but like at the time of the pause it was Voracek in the spot with Giroux and Couturier and Konechny was playing on a line with Hayes and and Farabee. And then, of course, we also have like Morgan Frost coming up and like Nolan Patrick, like you said, was injured. So like, which makes it very exciting for the Flyers. that They could potentially fill like a top nine of all interesting good players. Uh, but what's your sense of like what the top six will look like? Like either, you know, if we do this training camp or, you know, let's say next season at the actual training camp for 2020-21. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting question. I mean, the the five guys that are definitely going to be in there are Drew Couturier, Voracek, Konechny, and Hayes. The sixth guy is you know the, it kind of cycles. Obviously, Farabee's an option. Scott Lawton played well in in limited minutes on the second line. Then there's JVR. He'll be back healthy. So there's other guys that can come in. Um, and then looking at it long term, you're right. Morgan Frost is an option there. Farabee's presumably only going to get better. I mean, everybody's hoping and praying that Oscar Lindblom's going to be able to come back and play hockey again. And he he was in the midst of a breakout year before he was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma. So there's a lot of players in the mix in theory that could be that that extra guy in the top six to really solidify it. In the short term, you know, it's it's tough to know exactly how they're going to structure it because like I think they know right now that Drew and Couturier are a duo. They work incredibly well together. They play off each other. They need to be the duo that makes up the top line. That third winger, though, both Konechny and Voracek are really good there. So it's almost a case of like you always know you can audible it. Like you could start a series with connecting on the top line, and if they have a couple games where they're not putting the puck in the net, then you move Voracek up there. Like I don't think they're wedded to one trio because they know that both trios work really well. So it gives you the flexibility of just kind of running with whoever's hot at that time. 
yeah, maybe it comes down to who's going to have the best chemistry with Kevin Hayes, maybe, yeah, like who, yeah. who's better on the second line. It, it's, it's so interesting. It's kind of like what's going on in Pittsburgh right now, where like I'm very fascinated to see, is Gensel, because Gensel's played well with Crosby, and he's also played well with Malkin, and I wonder like who he's going to land with. And I guess same for Travis Konechny, but I guess it's good for Well, probably the best thing for Konechny is to land with Giroud and Couturier. That's going to give him the highest offensive ceiling. But it sounds like you're saying it could go either way, back and forth throughout the season, just like this year. Yeah, definitely. So you brought up... Uh, Oscar Lindblom. So I might as well get to him next. Uh, I had a lot. I asked the patrons of Keeping Carlson. I told them that we have we're having you on, asking like what they wanted to ask about. And a couple people were asking just for a health update on Lindblom. Very curious to hear how he's doing. Like we should mention, Lindblom was in the midst of a breakout season this year. His minutes jumped to like uh, around seventeen and a half minutes a game when he was less than fourteen the previous year. He was regularly playing on a line with Couturier and either like Konechny or Voracek, like we've discussed. Uh, and Lindblom actually had sixteen points in his first twenty games. So he came out super strong. Uh, but then, like you said, 30 games in, his season was abruptly cut short with this uh, Ewing sarcoma diagnosis. So, yeah, do you have any updates on how he's doing health-wise? And then I guess maybe I'll follow up with some questions about hockey. But the main thing, of course, is, is he going to be okay? Yeah, I'm, we all certainly hope so. And, you know, understandably, uh, he and his family have um, you know been pretty tight-lipped on how everything's going. It's a very private matter, and, you know, we certainly want to respect that. Everything I've heard is positive, that, uh, you know, that the treatments are going, I, I've been told, about as well as one could have hoped. Um, now, what that means for his hockey future, we're not sure. But in the end, the most important thing is that this guy is going to be able to live a long and healthy life. And it does look like, at least right now, you know, things can change, obviously, but we're hoping that they don't, that um, it looks like the treatments are going well. So um, that's all we know so far. You know, there have been some there's been some talk that, you know, Oscar may at some point, you know, hold like a press conference of some sort, I guess, considering where we are, you know, in the world, it probably would be over the phone, especially because he's he's immunosuppressed as well. So he's one of those people Mm -hmm. who is uh, you know, particularly at risk for uh, for coronavirus. Um, that's been talked about. Nothing scheduled or anything. Um, but yeah, I believe he's on like the last round of his treatments right now, and the doctors are really happy, supposedly, with how they're going. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully he beats this, and then from there, you know, if you know if he gets goes into remission or they they have it under control to a degree where there's no immediate risk to playing, hopefully he can you know try to make a comeback because you know we all that that. that that's what obviously every Flyers fan is rooting for. But as I said, the most important thing is, is the guy's overall health. And so far, everything I've heard about that is positive. Okay, well, that's great to hear. Definitely, we're wishing him all the best. And it does seem like, am I correct in my assumption that before this all happened, it seemed like they were looking at him like a core piece of the team, like he was getting big minutes playing with the big names. Was that something that you were thinking was going to continue? And like, you know, moving forward, like he was an RFA this year, was the plan that he was going to be a potential top six guy among this other list of players that you were throwing out earlier? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, I'm a little bit biased because I've been extremely high on Oscar Lindblom for years, um, like even dating back to his time in the uh, the SHL when he had his breakout season right before he came over. Like, he's just one of those guys where he's he's so smart. He, he drives play. He's always around the net. He just his instincts are so good. The question for him always was like, you knew he was going to be a very useful player. The question was whether he was going to score enough to be a top sixer or if he was going to be more of a middle sixer, you know, guy who you put on a line to make sure it spends less time in the defensive zone. Well, this year he was really starting to show it and he was really starting to to be a little bit more assertive in the offensive zone. Uh, he got a bit faster. Uh, skating's always been one of his weaknesses, but every year it seems like he picks up a little bit more of a gear. This year he looked as fast as I'd ever seen him. 
Um, so yeah, in my mind, I was looking at him as a viable top six forward for the foreseeable future. Um, just such a fun player to watch, especially if you're into the little details of the game. He's one of those guys where, you know, I'm, I'm working on a, a well, I've finished a tracking project. Now I'm working on, a, you know, writing it up. Hopefully that'll be out in the next couple of weeks um, at The Athletic. But he was one of the players that during this tracking project, it was watching what what I was tracking, it was amazing to see all the little things he did right. And he was sort of developing into something of like a like a winger Sean Couturier, I think. Um, now whether he would have whether he would have or will reach the uh, the heights scoring wise that Couturier has recently, who knows? But from a smart standpoint and from a play driving standpoint, yeah, I mean it, it's it's there. So I was I was absolutely viewing Oscar Lindblom as a, a core piece of this team, and I think the Flyers were as well. And I know the the new coaching staff headed up by Vino loved the guy. So uh, so hopefully you know as I said. Hopefully he can he can get past this. Hopefully he can re- resume his career, and hopefully he's the same player when he comes back. If he comes back, if not better, yeah. I mean, hey, two Sean Couturiers on the same line. Yeah, uh, that's pretty good. <laughs> and I guess since we're doing Flyers health updates, you might as well also cover Nolan Patrick, who's had a rough go of things lately. Like, first of all, he gets drafted second overall, two thousand seventeen. He had that amazing junior career in the WHL, but his first couple of years in the NHL, not much of a impact, at least offensively. He uh, wasn't playing big minutes, and then, like, uh, really sadly, he missed the. He hasn't played at all this season. He missed the entire two thousand nineteen twenty campaign with this migraine disorder. So again, like, I just want to ask before we discuss you know nolan patrick's on ice performance and, and his future in hockey like how is he doing health wise like if this playoffs happen i was starting to see some rumors that maybe he could potentially be back for that but like like is does that mean that he's on the cusp of a full recovery he's definitely making progress and there was there was kind of a turning point from my understanding in like january or so um, when it really started, because the whole thing with this migraine disorder is it's all about management. You know, it's very possible that this is never going to be to fully go away to be cured in any classic sense. It's more just number one, managing the symptoms. Number two, learning what lifestyle changes need to be made to, to mitigate the effects so that they don't become crippling and they don't stop him from, you know, basically being a functioning member of society, which migraines absolutely can do to people for weeks on end when they're at their absolute worst. So I think there was just a um, there was just a, a real lack of understanding of what needed to be done to uh, to put him in the best possible you know medical condition and even start thinking about playing again. Well, around like late January, it kind of started to turn, and then he started practicing with the team on a daily basis, not in full, like he wasn't participating in every single drill. But you know, leading up to the deadline, he was on the ice with the team pretty much every day at practice, morning skates, whatnot, just to skate around and work with uh, uh, Angelo Ricci, the the Flyers skills coach, and whatnot. So he was definitely making progress. Now, the the thing is, is that when the pandemic hit and when lockdown started, he went home, which again, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, during this whole situation, you want to be home with your family. You don't want to be locked in Philadelphia, just going to, you know, Voorhees to work with, uh, with skating coaches every day. You want to be with your family during all this, but because he went home, the flyers really haven't been able to, to be around him for months. Like the trainers haven't been around him to see where he's at from a physical standpoint. The doctors haven't been around him to, you know, to be able to actually, um, you know, treat him and get a read on what a timeline might be and understand his symptoms in the way that you can if someone's right in front of you. So I'm sure they're in contact with him. I'm sure they're doing all that. But it's just a different it's a different thing when it's when it's done over over Zoom versus done face to face. And I just don't think anybody really knows what it's going to be like 
when he gets back. You know, if he gets back uh, for uh, for phase three, if phase three can happen, I mean, hopefully it can. Uh, considering what we heard today, you never really know. Um, but when training camp starts, he's expected to be here, and then they're going to get a read on where he is. So, you know, one of the one of the good things for him, I guess, in this whole thing is that one of the things that may have stopped the Flyers from trying to get him back into a game this season was the idea that he had missed the whole year and he really hadn't had much of a summer the previous year because he was battling all this. So the idea that like he's just not going to be up to speed with the rest of the players in the NHL, well, now everybody's going to have that problem. So right. that's, that's no longer an issue that will keep him out longer than anybody else. Now it's just a matter of, is he going to be medically cleared? And if he's medically cleared, do... Does, does the Flyers organization and does Nolan Patrick and his entire camp, do they feel comfortable having him take the risk of jumping back in? Or do they just want to write the rest of the season off and say he'll be back for next season? So there will be a lot of decisions that need to be made. But the first thing that has to happen is he has to be medically clear and he hasn't been medically cleared yet. Right. So obviously a lot of unknowns. And again, like hopefully he'll be fine because, you know, I would love to see what this guy can do once he's at full capacity. You you brought up that before this all started, the plan was for him to be the third line center on the team this year. Is that at this point what the Flyers see Nolan Patrick as? Or was that just more like a for now you're the third line center and we expect you to grow to be like a second line, first line center? Like generally these second overall picks are going to be like a big offensive contributor to the team. But have people already started kind of giving up on Nolan Patrick as being like one of these top guys? And now we're just hoping that he'll be a productive middle six player? Uh, No, I mean, to be clear, every time I talk to people in the Flyers organization, they still fully believe in Nolan Patrick's skill set. Like they they believe he has the talent to be an impact player. Maybe not a superstar, but definitely an impact player in this league. So it's certainly not that the Flyers have given up on him. It's just there's so much uncertainty surrounding him that it's hard to know what you're going to get. In addition, like you talked about him starting the season projected to be the third line center. I actually, you know, while I guess in a sense that was showing a bit of a lack of faith in him, I actually think it would have been beneficial for him because one of the things that really hurt him in his sophomore year was that he was essentially just given the second-line center role because they didn't have anybody else unless they wanted to move Giroux back to center, which they didn't want to do, at least to start. So they pretty much just penciled him in as 2C, and what happened was that he just didn't seem to be ready for it. You know, he had a great second half of his rookie year, and it looked like he was ready to take that leap. And in 2018-19, he kind of took a step back. And I think the Flyers looked at it as, we can't, like, we're hoping that Nolan Patrick is going to be an impact center, an impact, an impact forward, an impact player. But we can't base our entire plan around the fact that it's destined to happen. So that's why they went out and they got Kevin Hayes, because it was like, let's get a guy who's definitely a center. Plus, when they were negotiating with Kevin Hayes, they knew about this migraine disorder. So that just added another thing into it where it's like, well, if if this is a, a career threatening thing, then we really need another center. So that played into it. But I think the thought process was that Patrick would, would benefit del- developmentally. By playing, because he's only 21 years old, like he would he would benefit developmentally from playing as the third line center, getting easier minutes, not having the entire team looking to him to score like a second line center. So he could kind of naturally develop the way that he was he was destined to develop rather than having all that pressure being put on him to be something that maybe at this point he's not quite yet. So I think it actually would have helped his development. I don't think it was necessarily the Flyers saying that they didn't trust that Patrick was ever going to get to the point 
that they're hoping he can get to. It was more just an acknowledgement that he's not there yet, and we want to do everything we can to put him in the best possible situation, the best possible opportunity to get to that point. And it's not like he wouldn't have played with talented players. Like, James Van Riemsdyk's a third-line winger on this team. You got guys yeah. like Morgan Frost. You got guys like Joel Farabee. Like, this isn't a team where being the third-line center means you're not playing with great line mates. This is a deep team. So it's not as if he would have been hurt from a quality of teammate standpoint by getting pushed down the lineup a little bit. There are a lot of great wingers on this team. So I think it would have helped him a lot. Unfortunately, he then just didn't play this year. So this is kind of a lost year. But I, I certainly don't think this is a case of the Flyers losing faith in Nolan Patrick. No. Okay, that's great to know. And man, it's really great for the team to know that they did so well this year. And like Lindblom and yeah. Nolan Patrick didn't play. So imagine if these guys are healthy. Though, of course, by the time they come back, they're going to have to figure out contracts. That's a whole other thing. I know Patrick and Lindblom are actually uh, restricted free agents right now. So it'll be interesting to see what they're going to do. But you brought up Kevin Hayes, a guy who's definitely not going to be a restricted or unrestricted free agent anytime soon because the Flyers made that big splash last summer. They signed him to a seven-year, $50 million deal. And I guess he earned it because he was coming off a career year with the Rangers and then Winnipeg. Well, not so much Winnipeg, but he was great on the Rangers in 2018-19. 55 points in 71 games overall, so a 64-point pace. But aside from that, he'd mainly been around a 50-point guy for his career, but he had that great season. Then he signs with Philly. Then his first year with Philly, he went back to, you know, his pre-2018-19 numbers. So he ended the season with 41 points in 69 games. That's a 49-point pace if he played the full 82. Though, I, I, of course, I know that that's not the only way that Kevin Hayes should be measured. Like, he's obviously a very strong contributor to the team. I know he wins face he plays shorthanded. He even, I noticed, got into the Philly spirit a little bit. He had uh, more hits than games for the first time in his career. So obviously he's, he's into the broad street lifestyle of throwing the body around. Uh, so one year into the seven-year deal, do you think Philly is happy with what they saw? Are they feeling like they got their money's worth and they're excited that they made this deal? Or do you think there's any thoughts of, oh man, maybe we overpaid or signed him for too long? So it's interesting you bring up Hayes in that sense, because I definitely get the vibe and obviously, you know, being on Twitter and I obviously follow a lot of, you know, advanced stat people and whatnot. There's there's kind of an outsider view that Kevin Hayes's year wasn't that great. And I can tell you flat out that that is not the feeling in Philadelphia. Philadelphia fans love love this guy, and the organization loves what he brought to the table this year. Like, the offensive numbers aren't amazing. I, I'll acknowledge that. And even, like, I mean, I think his play-driving numbers are fine, but because of, like, some quirks in, like, his, I think his penalty differential wasn't that great, and uh, he, he kind of had a... a I think it was probably like a deflated on ice shooting percentage. So he actually didn't grade out very well at all in like uh, like evolving hockey's uh, goals above replacement stat. But I can tell you this, like the the things that he brought to the table this year, it, it, it kills me to, to use this kind of terminology, but you kind of just had to see it. Like he was fantastic, absolutely fantastic on the penalty kill. He's a big reason why the Flyers penalty kill went from for years being terrible to this year finally being good. And he was a driving force behind that. His penalty kill uh, ability, his shorthanded um his shorthanded work was fantastic. He had a bunch of shorthanded goals and he also came through with a lot of goals in big situations, a lot of game-winning goals, a lot of clutch goals. And I think for a lot of people too, there was just a feeling of especially after the Nolan Patrick situation became public, this feeling of, 
my God, what would we have done if we didn't have Kevin Hayes? Because then you would have had no choice but to move Giroux back to center full time. And then you, and even then you still wouldn't have had a third line center. Your third line center would have been, you know, Scott Lawton, Michael Roffel, something like that. They were, they maybe they would have just had to force Morgan Frost up into the role before he was truly ready. So the idea with, with Hayes was just that imagine where the Flyers would be without him. And like, did they overpay for him? Yeah. Yeah, probably, probably by about like, you know, three quarters of a million dollars a year, maybe by a year or two. But he filled such an essential need for this team that I certainly don't think the Flyers would take back the signing by any means. And I'll tell you this, like there were a lot of fans when that signing got announced that were extremely skeptical of it. There are not many skeptics of Kevin Hayes left in Philadelphia right now. He's quickly becoming a fan favorite. So it's interesting to explain that to an outsider because I can totally understand why someone who's not watching the Flyers, who's not following them, would take a look at the numbers and think he didn't have that great of a year. But it's important to know that like in Philadelphia, that is definitely not the perception. That's very interesting, especially because I don't think Philadelphia Flyers are known for keeping their opinions to themselves. So (laughs) if uh, the fans are saying they're happy with the deal, then I'm going to trust that probably he did a good job for the team. And clearly everything you're saying makes a ton of sense. And yeah, they didn't have another second line center. So it's easy to say, oh, you should have spent less, but maybe he wouldn't have signed if if they didn't offer this much money. There are obviously other teams looking for his services. And I guess I'll ask you about the other unrestricted free agent that they signed recently the season before, the summer before, Chuck Fletcher signed. James Van Riemsdyk. Oh, no, that wasn't Chuck Fletcher. That was Hextall. That was Hextall's last big signing. Right. Hextall goes, signs James Van Riemsdyk to a five-year, $35 million deal. And yeah, it doesn't seem like, from what I've heard from you in this interview and also from what I've been reading, maybe they're not as happy with him as they were with Kevin Hayes this season. Like, he actually had a similar offensive season as Kevin Hayes. He pays for around 50 points this past season, 19 goals, 21 assists, and 68 games. But unlike Hayes, this was actually one of his worst outputs offensively in his career. Like, since back in 2011-12, he's always been more of, like, a 25-30 goal guy, 55-65 points. So being around 50 points isn't that great. Also, he was less than 15 minutes of ice time on average and he was bumped from the top power play like we discussed so yeah he wasn't getting the great opportunities actually by the time the pause came I looked at the line combos for the very last game and he was playing in the bottom six with guys like Derek Grant and Tyler Pitlick and Nate Thompson so he wasn't getting the great line mates he wasn't on the top power play so is it fair to say that JVR ended the season in Alan Vigneault's doghouse and at this point is he gonna have to prove something to get back into the top six back in the top power play and be a big offensive contributor again? So I actually, God, he had such an interesting year because I actually don't think he is in Elaine Vigneault's doghouse. I really don't. I think uh, they really pushed him hard this year um, to to recommit himself to the defensive side of his game because last year, which was the first year of the contract, the scoring numbers were right where they should be. You know, they were, he missed, he missed time because he had a broken bone. um, So that made the counting stats not look as good, but by, by rate, he was right exactly where he normally is. The problem was, was that he was like, the Flyers were getting gashed defensively when he was on the ice that, that first year. And it was weird because in Toronto, he had always, um, you know, not always, but in the last like two or three years of his time in Toronto, he had turned himself into kind of an advanced stat darling and his advanced stats fell off a cliff in his first year in Philly. And I think the Flyers, whether they were looking at the numbers or whether they just recognized that his defense had really slipped, 
the the new coaching staff came in and they rode him pretty hard. You know, they were they were nitpicking him, they were they were criticizing him for, you know, for a perceived lack of effort in certain situations. So when the season actually started, he kind of came out and was really playing with a newfound recommitment to to two-way play. And it showed in the in the advanced stats. Like he was one of the Flyers' best play-driving wingers this year. The problem with his game, when you're looking at the counting stats was that for whatever reason, and I still don't understand. I I've talked to him about this. He does and understand it he just couldn't score goals on the power play this year like his power play production dried up to a ridiculous degree if you look at his even strength uh like his, his per 60 numbers they're fine they're right where they should be he just stopped scoring on the power play which is so weird for a guy who's been a great power play forward for so many years it just happened out of the blue and it made no sense at all but that's what happened and that's why they dropped him off power play one i don't think it was because he was in the doghouse necessarily it was because he just couldn't score a goal and they needed goal scoring from the guy in front of the net so that's when they tried out connecting and that worked out better but I don't think he was in the doghouse per se because the coaching staff never was super critical of him. They were always very positive about, you know, him buying in and him really, you know, setting a good example. Like I've talked to, to people in the organization that talk about JVR and he certainly doesn't have this reputation in some circles, but I've, I've talked to people in the organization who consider him as like one of the players who doesn't cheat on the ice. And it's funny because you talk to some of his attractors and they'll scream that JVR cheats all day, but they have a really high view of his hockey IQ and his willingness to, uh, you know, to, to commit to a two-way game. It's just, I don't know where the heck the goals went on the power play, but that was the problem. And if you're looking at it from a fantasy perspective, the hard thing is that I don't know if he's going to get back on the top power play unit in Philadelphia. So that will yeah. cut down on you know his ceiling as a player unless power play two becomes like the way it was in Toronto a couple of years ago where both units were just awesome. Um, but I think as a player, I don't think he's in the doghouse. I think the Flyers still like him as a player. You know, maybe he's a little overpaid, but I, I don't think they're they're dissatisfied with him. It's just that the numbers weren't there this year, and maybe they'll come back. You know, maybe he ends up back on power play one next year. Somebody gets hurt, and they have to put him back on there, and then he proves that this year was just a weird fluke with uh, with the power play goals. But that's more or less what happened, and I don't think it's a case of the Flyers souring on him. It's just kind of playing the hand that they were dealt. Okay, yeah, so I definitely asked this question and you've answered that the team likes him, but maybe fantasy-wise it's going to be hard to expect him to jump up unless maybe there's an injury because it's hard to imagine who he's going to bump from the top power yeah. play. I, I got to actually circle back to Hayes. I remember I had a question from one of the patrons, Brandon, who really wanted to know. So like you said that, yeah, Hayes is loved. He, he did a great job this season, even though he only landed with a 49-point pace. So with that in mind, should we assume that that is what Hayes is moving forward? Like, do we think his role and his output will be pretty much the same as what we saw like should we pencil him in as that 50 point guy and that season with the rangers in 2018-19 was like an aberration or do you think he does have upside for more in philly and it's just going to be a matter of some change in opportunity or maybe the same opportunity but he could just do more I, I think I view him as like a 50 to 60 point guy. I, I don't think that he's realistically, you know, a, a 60 to 70 point player, especially because he is the second, he is the second line center. There isn't necessarily a clear path to him getting back on the top power play. I mean, he had some time on there this year, but in the end, like Sean Couturier is probably the better fit in, in the middle in that, uh, that bumper role uh, as the lefty shot. So, you know, he'll get his points and he's going to get his ice time without a doubt. And if you're in a league where shorthanded points, uh, give you some type of bonus, then there's certainly going to be value there because the way he plays shorthanded in the flyer system, he's going to get some goals and he's going to get some big ones, um, you know, from a shorthanded perspective. But I, I don't, 
to me, if he's getting, you know, 55, 56, 57 points in a season, I'm viewing that as a very successful year for Kevin Hayes, considering the role that he's going to be used in Philly for the foreseeable future. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, it's interesting that you bring up his shorthanded offensive skills. I saw you wrote an article on The Athletic, the 10 Flyers shorthanded offensive <laughs> weapons of the 2010s. And I won't spoil it, but Kevin Hayes ranked uh, pretty high on that list after only one year with the team. Uh, so let's switch over to some prospect forwards now. A lot of people listening want to, you know, look to the future. And these prospects that I want to bring up are people that played with the team this year and actually got pretty prominent roles. Like if you look at Joel Farabee, who was the 14th overall pick in 2018, he played 52 games in this season, his rookie season. He put up a respectable 21 points and he saw a lot of time with big names. He played a bit with Giroux and JVR to start things off, finished the season on the second line with Hayes and Konechny. Uh, then we also have the 2017-27th over overall pick Morgan Frost who had a solid first pro season with Lee Valley of the AHL he was huge back when he was in juniors and then he was pretty decent in the AHL and he made a big splash when he got called up to the big club in November he got on a line right away with Giroux and Konechny and he scored a goal in each of his first two games and people were losing their minds wondering like oh my god should I you know in fantasy like should I pick up Morgan <laughs> Frost is he gonna be able to keep this up and it's kind of like it was hard to say no because it's like if he's gonna be playing with Giroux and Konechny obviously that's a recipe for success but also there was no guarantee that he was going to stay there and he didn't and he cooled off after that and he ended with seven points in 20 games overall uh, at this point if you had to pick one which of these two forwards you expect to play a bigger offensive role for philly over the next couple of seasons who's the guy if you had to bet on on one would it be joel Farabee or morgan frost as the one that's gonna really make something happen yeah, I would, I would probably bet on Farabee, uh, and that's not a slight against Morgan Frost. It's just the fact that Farabee, I think, has a clear path to a prominent role on the Flyers as compared to Frost. Because Farabee's a winger, and Farabee also, he has, he, he has a, a hockey IQ that the Flyers organization really loves. So he's the kind of guy where he's going to get a lot of opportunities Um high up in the lineup because they just trust in his ability to not make the wrong play. He might not make all the right plays yet, but he's not going to kill you. And he's just, he's a, he's a good four checker. He's a smart player. He's, he has a nose for the net. Like he's the kind of guy where he's only going to get better as he gets more physically strong, especially when you're talking about four checks and winning puck battles and things like that. But he has the IQ that you can put him on a second line and it'll work. Or you can put him on a fourth line, and that works too. Whereas with Frost, there's definitely a feeling in the organization, number one, that he needs a little bit more work to truly be, be viewed as NHL-ready because they, they don't love they, – they, they really like him as a player. Like, I don't want to make it seem like they don't like Morgan Frost. They still view him as part of the future without a doubt. But there's some feeling that you know, he should probably play with a little bit more pace, that he, there's, there's attention to detail in the defensive zone that isn't quite where it needs to be for them to feel comfortable putting him out there for 82 games on one of the top three lines of the team. So – and then there's also the fact that the Flyers have a lot of centers already. Like Morgan Frost is a center. The Flyers have Couturier. They have Hayes. They have Patrick if he comes back. Maybe they might have to move Frost to wing, but they kind of like him at center. So he doesn't have as clear of a path to a spot in the lineup as someone like Farabee. So to me, Farabee is the safer pick because he's going to be on this team. Like Joel Farabee is going to be a member of this team. What he what his ceiling is, that'll depend on how well he plays. But he is going to be a Philadelphia Flyer for the foreseeable future 
Whereas Morgan Frost, I think, is still trying to figure out exactly where he fits, which mm-hmm. maybe makes it tougher from a fantasy perspective to truly count on him. Now, that's not to say that he doesn't have offensive ability because his offensive ability, his creativity, it's it's higher than, than Joel Farabee. But I just think Farabee is the kind of guy where you can trust that you're going to at least get a useful player out of him, whereas Frost is a little bit more of a boomer bust type pick from a fantasy perspective. Yeah, I get what you're saying. It's interesting. Frost and Nolan Patrick both got taken in the first round of the same yeah. draft, and now they might be competing with each other for that third line center spot once Patrick comes back. Uh, okay, let's switch over to D now. I guess no more prospect talk. This guy was a prospect for a while. People were always wondering, like, is Ivan Provorov, is it Ivan or Ivan? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I think there's there's probably, like, the Russian way to say it, but he's just basically told people, like, look, there's the Russian way to say it. Just say it the Americanized way. It's easier. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, and Ivan Provorov is someone who we were waiting to see what he could do. He was already great. Like, he's, he's now played four seasons in the NHL. His first three seasons, he was great, but he was obviously a little bit capped because he couldn't get on the top power play because Shane Gossespierre was there. This season was the year, though. The 2015 7th overall pick finally bumped Shane Gossespierre from the top power play by the end of October. He held on to that spot the rest of the way, and he was also playing big minutes on the top pairing at even strength. He was a big part of the penalty kill, so Ivan Provorov, clearly a huge part of this team, and unsurprisingly, he put up his best ever point pace. He had 36 points in 69 games. It's a 43-point pace, which, like, on one hand, is, like, very solid and great, but also like kind of a little surprisingly low especially considering what Gosses Beher was able to do with that role on the top power play a couple seasons ago like with 60 plus points um either way I guess the big question that many of us are wondering right now is do you think that Vigno and the organization expect Provorov to hold this spot quarterbacking the top power play for this foreseeable future or is it kind of like he's got it for now but there's like lots of potential people nipping at his heels like obviously Shane Gosses Beher is still in the picture and then you've got like Sanheim, Niskanen, Myers, Cam York like I, I don't know like so is is Provorov the guy for the foreseeable future or is this sort of uh, a thing where he's got it for now and then it, he could lose it at any time I I think he could plausibly lose it like the the thing with Provorov that's interesting is that before this year, he was never good on the power play. Like he was actively bad on the power play, both oh. by from a from a number standpoint and from an eye test standpoint. It just didn't seem like something that really clicked for him. And even this year, if you look at like the the on ice shot attempts and on ice chances metrics, wasn't that great. But the one thing that he was able to do this year was he was able to score goals on the power play. He finished with seven power play goals. He was able to get that wrist shot through, and he does have a plus wrist shot. So despite the fact that the underlying numbers weren't great, the goals were there. So you kind of had to keep them up there. The thing is, is that if those underlying numbers don't improve, and they might, you know, he's still a young player. He might just get better and better and learn how to facilitate the creation of more offense on the power play. If those numbers don't improve, and if a few of those seeing eye wrist shots don't go in in the next couple of years. Yeah, I could plausibly see him losing that job because as of right now, they still have Shane Goss to spare. You know, he's, if you're talking about a guy who's in like the doghouse, he's probably the guy on this team who, yeah. if you're going to say he's in the doghouse, he's in the doghouse. But like the offensive ability is still somewhere in there. And if he can rediscover that, then I don't think they would hesitate too long to put him back on power play one. Um, Sanheim has the ability to do it in theory. And, uh, and you mentioned Cam York. Cam York is a potential power play one uh, defenseman. So there are guys where if Provorov's production on the power play disappears or declines, there are guys that are very much there that can step in. So I don't think this is necessarily a, uh, a lock for him to be power play one defenseman, you know, for the next six, seven, eight years by any means. That said, if he keeps scoring, they're going to keep him on there. And there's definitely a feeling, you know, that 
he's our workhorse number one defenseman. And usually the workhorse number one defenseman also is the guy on the top power play unit. So mm-hmm. I think there's a feeling that it's it's just easy to put him on the power play unit because, you know, that's when you get your points. And it's kind of a, you know, a, a pat on the back, like a reward for all the things he does in the other situations. So it's easy for them to keep him on there. But when you have other options, if Proveroff struggles in the power play for a month, two months, I don't think they're going to hesitate to pull him off. So I don't think his job security is like to the point where one of the top power play quarterbacks, you know, would be because there just are other viable options, very viable options, both on this roster and in the pipeline. Yeah, that makes sense. He's not like a John Carlson in terms of how guaranteed he is to hold that spot. But if he does hold it, I'm curious to see what the upside could be. Maybe a 60 plus point season like Ghost Bear. Uh, I guess we'll have to see how everything shakes out on the power play. Uh, Speaking of Ghost Bear, who you said, uh, uh, by the way, do people hate it uh, when people refer to Ghost Bear as Ghost Bear or do they like it? Because I remember like at first when he first came on the scene, everyone was so excited. We were using those emojis to reference him. Like, how does Shane feel about that? I think he likes it. I, I think the the acceptable nicknames for him are either Ghost or Ghost Bear. The ones that are bad is like when people try to put the in front of it, like the ghost. <laughs> and it doesn't work. But either Ghost or Ghost Bear is fine. Okay, cool. So Ghost Bear, I was going to say, like, if you had agreed that JVR was in the doghouse, and I was going to ask if Ghost Bear is like in a pet travel crate or something (laughs) like something even worse because yeah not only did he have a down year and get less ice time he was also healthy scratched a number of times uh like what happened to this guy how does he go from having a 46 point in 64 games rookie season like a 65 point season 2017-18 then like 18-19 he dipped he only had 37 points which is still pretty solid for a defenseman i did notice though that his minutes were down and when he wasn't playing on the top power play didn't seem like he was getting a lot of time even strength and then this season like, he barely played, and then when he did play, he managed only 12 points in 42 games. So, like, what happened to Ghost Bear? Do you think that there's a bounce-back potential in his future? Like, he's 27 years old. He's still under contract for a few years. What's going on with this guy? It's really tough to know. Um, you know, last year he was dealing with some injuries. This year he dealt with some injuries, so I'm sure that's that's played into it to a degree. But, yeah, the last two seasons have just not been the, the, the Shane Goss Bear that we saw in his best years. And, uh, and it took time, but, you know, he's, he's slid down the depth chart, absolutely, and it's justified, especially this year. This year was a, a really disappointing year, especially considering the fact that he was under a new coaching staff. And I think there was a hope that he might be able to turn the page from what was a disappointing, like not terrible, but a disappointing 2018-19. And a lot of guys turned the page. Like, we just talked to Ivan Provov. Ivan Provorov, Ivan Provorov did not have a good 2018-19. He scared a lot of people with how down of a year that was. This year, he's back to being the player that Flyers fans and anybody that watches the team on a regular basis, the player that we all believed he was going to be. Ghost, on the other hand, got worse. And I don't think, like, I know I said he's in the doghouse, and he is to a degree, but it's not, it's not like I think that the coaching staff hates him. Like it's this isn't a situation where like they're desperate to trade him because they're just fed up with Shane Goss's bear. It's just a matter of like they just haven't been able to it just hasn't clicked for him. And it's you know, it's not that he doesn't want to make it work. It's not that he's not trying to to follow the advice of the coaching staff. It's just that for whatever reason, they just haven't been able to get the most out of him yet. And I've always viewed Chang Osper as a player who he's a very emotional player in the sense that he like when he's on he just feeds off of that that emotion and he feeds off of just like everything is going right and I'm just going to get on this ridiculous roll and just be dominant for three straight months. But there's a flip side of that where when he's struggling it gets really bad. 
Like he, I think, gets in his own head and starts overthinking things when in reality, he's a much better player when he's just doing things without thinking, where he's just, you know, making these unconscious decisions to be aggressive and to be active and making plays. And when he starts overthinking things, then it just gets ugly. And I think that's kind of what's happened over the last year and a half or year and, you know, year and two thirds, I guess, is when the when the season paused. Um, can he get back to where he was? Yeah, he could. I mean, the talent's still there. I still believe in the player. I believe that it just didn't disappear. You don't forget how to be that good offensively overnight like it seemed like he did. The question for me is whether that's going to happen in Philadelphia. And, you know, he's definitely the kind of player who I could plausibly see as a change of scenery candidate, especially now, because as you mentioned, he wasn't even in the starting lineup, really, to end the season. He got in that final game in Bo- against Boston right before the pause because Phil Myers got hurt. But if everybody was healthy, Shane Gossesbeer was not in the six-man defenseman rotation. And... You know, I think a four million dollar contract is perfectly fine for a power play one, uh, you know, a power play one defenseman who maybe is like a borderline second, third pair defenseman, like a four or a five. I think that's a fair deal. But for paying four million dollars for a number seven defenseman who isn't scoring yeah. on the power play anyway, yeah, that's a little tough to swallow. So it's possible to me that the Flyers look at it and they say, you know, stagnant cap. You know, we want to bring back some some of our pending UFAs. We want to have some cap flexibility. Is is there another team? out there that that views Gosses Bear as a reclamation project that's willing to give us a decent return for him, maybe they send him out. And I'm not saying it's inevitable. As I said, I don't think this is a case of like the Flyers coaches hate the guy and they want him gone, but it's just a situation where he doesn't necessarily have an obvious spot in the lineup right now. And if you don't need him and you can use him to fill a hole somewhere else, maybe that's a route they might take. Yeah, it seems like it's a good situation to be in. They have so many great defensemen, and so they can't fit Gossip Hair necessarily into their lineup. And, you know, I know Chicago's always on the market for a reclamation project. They got Dylan Strome and Alex Nylander, so maybe they'll they'll take a shot on him as well. But also, it's interesting that you say, like you say, like, you don't just forget how to play hockey, like, and it's not as if he's super old. He's only 27, so it would be interesting to see if he could ever bump Provorov at least for a little bit and get another shot on the top power play. I'd be curious to see what he'll be able to do. Another guy I'd love to get your take on is someone who you brought up before, Travis Sanheim. He was one of only three Philly defensemen who averaged over 20 minutes of ice time this season, along with Provorov and Niskanen. And even though Sanheim saw more minutes this year than in 2018-19, he actually took a a little step back offensively. He only had 25 points in 69 games, which is a 30-point pace compared to his 35 points in 2018-19. So, of course, that's just like a couple bounces. (laughs) It's not too far apart. Uh, But whenever I read tweets about Sanheim, I drafted him recently in in a dynasty league draft the same one i was talking to you about that where carter hart went as the third goalie and so you know i was like researching like is sanheim gonna be good and like everyone says that this guy has a great a great offensive pedigree and he could be due for a breakout at some point so i'm very interested to hear your answer here like what do you think about sanheim do you think that there's a chance you said that there's always a small chance he could take over on the top power play but even if he doesn't do that are we looking at a guy that clearly already has a trust of the coaches in terms of ice time do you think he has a step he could still take offensively in theory, yeah. I mean, I love the skill set. I'm a big Travis Sanheim believer. You know, the, the plays he can make, his skating ability, his skill with the puck, like it's all high end. And I totally understand why there are people who believe a breakout is inevitable. And I think there's probably like, there's probably a 50 point year in, in his future at some point. Like I, I just wow. think it's, I don't know what year it's going to be, but like imagine a season where, you know, he just scores a lot of points on the, you know, at even strength and then maybe gets an opportunity on power play one. And yeah, he might bounce into a 50-point season. He has the skill to do it. That said, I just don't know from a role standpoint 
if the situation is conducive to him being like a super great offensive defenseman from a fantasy standpoint, because number one, he's a le- he's a lefty defenseman who's a natural lefty, and he's always going to be behind Proveroff, you know, from an ice time standpoint. He's going to be, I think, he's going to be a number three. He's going to be a great number three defenseman in the NHL, and that's his role for the Flyers, and that's great. But he's not going to be a workhorse, which means he's not going to just rack up the points from a sheer volume standpoint because he's playing 25 minutes a night. Plus he's, as much as I love him, he's a mistake prone player. He can make big mistakes. The, the guy I've always compared Travis Sanheim to, and this, this maybe will, will give a better explanation as to how I view him from a fantasy standpoint. I've always compared him to Jake Gardner. That's who I view Travis Sanheim as, where like he's like the ideal number three defenseman. You don't want him on your top hair because he's going to make those like Palm, like face palm mistakes that maybe you don't want him out there against first lines all the time, but he can take the minutes, he can make the plays, he's an offensively oriented player, but he's also not a guy who's going to break out for a 60-point year very often because he's not necessarily on the top power play unit all the time, and he's not maybe racking up the points at even strength to the degree you would need to to have like a huge offensive breakout. Plus, one thing you have to take into account with Philadelphia now under Elaine Vigneault is that they are... Under Dave Hacksaw, the Flyers defensemen were very, very active offensively. They were given the green light to jump into the play a lot, and they were not discouraged at all from taking shots. They shot the puck as much as any team's defense shot the puck. Elaine Vigneault, and this is the right move for the Flyers. I'm not criticizing this. Elaine Vigneault has definitely adjusted the offensive structure so that there are fewer point shots and there's more of a focus on getting the puck to high danger areas where forwards are the ones taking the shots, which is, again, great for the Flyers. I think it's shown up in their offensive efficiency, but it means that there's fewer chances for guys like Sandheim to really rack up points at even strength because they're just less involved with the types of plays that turn into goals. So you have to account for that, and, and that's something where, like, I've looked in deep into the numbers that like Corey Schneider tracks and pretty much all the Flyers defensemen, their, um, you know, their, their primary shot contributions are down this year at even strength versus the way they were the previous year. So I would be hesitant to say that like, well, he had 35 points in 2018, 2019. So he'll just regress back to that. Like it's a different offensive system. They're running now at even strength and it's not quite as conducive for defensemen to really rack up points at even strength to the degree it was under Dave Hackstall. Interesting. Okay, maybe that also explains why Provorov wasn't cracking like 60 plus points like Gosses Pair was able to do a little while back. Uh, okay, one more player that I'll ask you about, then uh, we'll wrap this thing up. But uh, we've had a lot of people wondering about their most recent first round pick, 14th overall 2019 Cam York. How's the team feeling about how his 2019 season went with the University of Michigan? He had 16 points in 30 games, but obviously hard to just look at the stats and, and know anything from there. But do you have any insight into if the team is still happy with this pick? And is there a chance he's going to get a shot with the big club next year or will he be going to the AHL? Like, what's the plan there? So to start out, yes, they're they're still very high on him. I mean, this was this was the Chuck Fletcher front office's first draft pick, uh, you know, running running the Flyers. So there's definitely an element of, you know, they 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 want him to work, but they're they're still high on him. Um one thing you have you have to realize with the University of Michigan this past season is that offensively they were a mess. 
this was a team that was really lacking high-end skill, really beyond York and um, and Beecher. Uh, that was pretty much it. And they just didn't have a lot of scoring depth. So York, I, I watched quite a few games that he played, and there were a lot of times where Cam York would make some great plays, pass it to someone, and there wouldn't even be a scoring chance to be created because this was just a team that was lacking offensive ability up and down the lineup. Well, this year, so he is going back to Michigan for a sophomore season, so he's not turning pro. He, he made okay. it clear that he's going back for one more year, so won't be in the AHL certainly will be in the NHL. He'll be going back to Michigan, and Michigan has one of the best recruiting classes in years coming in this season, if if it's played, because obviously there's questions about you know the impact of coronavirus on college hockey and just college sports in general. But if this season is played, Michigan is going to be a very talented team, and I, I'm expecting Cam York to have a big sophomore year, and then I'm expecting Cam York to leave school after a sophomore year and turn pro. Okay, that's huge. So it'll be very exciting to follow along. And yeah, Philly, a team that was not known for having good goaltending or necessarily great defense. And all of a sudden now they've got all these great prospects and an awesome goalie and just a really bright future overall. So good for them. Must be fun for you after all this time covering the team to have a team that potentially could be a contender as soon as this year, if uh, this playoffs happen. Like you said, now with this news out of Tampa Bay, who knows if that's still going to happen. Um, so I guess one question that I've been asking all of our beat writer interviews before letting them go is if you had to pick one flyer that you expect to be like the biggest positive surprise next season and then on the other hand do you have a player that you could point out that maybe will be the biggest disappointment like someone who will be expecting a lot from and maybe won't live up to what we're currently thinking they're capable of um for okay for for pleasant surprise i would probably go with joel farabee um just because i think he's going to next year i think he's going to come back faster i think he's going to come back stronger and i think he's going to have a role pretty far up the lineup um, I'm expecting big things from him. So I would say from a surprise standpoint, he would be my guy. He had a lot of scoring chances this year that just didn't go in for him. Like he was really involved in the front of the net, high danger chances. And he just, so many times it seemed like he was snake bitten. There was a time, his what should have been his first goal as a, as a flyer was in a game against, um, against Chicago. And he actually had two goals that were uh, that were overturned in that game because a teammate was just barely offside. And that was the kind of season that he had where like he could have very easily finished this year with 16, 17 goals. And he didn't. He finished with eight, which is fine for a rookie that only played 52 games. But like there's offensive upside with this kid that I easily could see happening in his sophomore year. Not guarantee, but I'm expecting him to take a big step forward in his sophomore season. And I've seen enough offensively to think that there's a lot more there. Now, if we're talking about disappointments, like that's a tough question to ask because like, I guess I'll approach this from the standpoint of a fantasy disappointment because I don't think that like he's going to have a bad year. But I could definitely see Travis Konechny taking what appears to be a step back or at least not taking that step forward that people in the fantasy community might be thinking he's going to take because of the year he had this year. Like, he scored on 17% of his shots this year. That's probably a little bit too high. He's probably not a true talent 17% shooter. And there's always the chance that he maybe does get dropped off that top power play unit or, you know, isn't on a line with Couturier and Drew and things like that. So as I said, I'm looking at Konechny as the kind of guy where he's going to fall into that Voracek realm where it's like his good seasons are point per game. His okay seasons are around 60, 65 points. And I think he's going to be drafted by a lot of people thinking that he's about to jump into that point per game realm. Whereas if I had to project what he's going to do next year, I think it probably would be around that like 60 to 65 point range. So not a, not a useless player in fantasy by any means. I'm just not necessarily expecting him to take another lead beyond this one quite yet. 
Okay, that's perfect. That's like a perfectly well thought out answer. And yeah, so people maybe should be a little bit conservative when trying to project Konechny for next season. Charlie, this has been so fun. This hour has flown by. I didn't even <laughs> ask you about like Couturier or Voracek specifically. Like this Flyers team just has so many interesting players. And obviously people, if they want to read more about the Flyers or hear more about the Flyers, you've got a bunch of articles coming out all the time on The Athletic. You're also the co-host of Broad Street Hockey Radio. Is there anything else you want to tell people to check out before i let you go um not really uh yeah i mean if if you're interested in subscribing we do have a a, a 30-day free trial that's out uh, currently like literally just click on an article and and you'll get the free trial for 30 days um well, as i told you earlier i'm working on a like finalizing a tracking project that i was doing during the pandemic um that will uh, probably start coming out uh next week my hope is that, that it's going to start i'll start publishing the articles next week and uh and that's i, I think um something i'm really excited about because with all the work I put in. So uh, so that might be a, a series worth uh, worth checking out, even if you're not a Flyers fan. I'm curious, like, do you have any teases? Like, is there any player, like you mentioned Lindblom really stood out in your model. Yeah. Is there any other players that uh, people are going to be surprised at how they land in this model? Uh, a guy we didn't talk about that much, um, Nick Albe Cubell really really impressed me um based on on the the results that we came out uh came out of this project with so uh maybe not a fantasy guy but definitely the kind of guy that uh he's developing into a player that every team would want on their side because he's one of those like do the little things right play driving type uh type wingers and he kind of came out of uh, a nowhere this year for a lot of people but he turned himself into a really useful bottom sixer cool well so people definitely should at the very least follow you at uh charlio underscore con we'll link to it in the show notes if people uh want to get that spelling exactly right and then i'm sure they'll be able to find all your articles we'll also link to the athletic and and to your podcast this was awesome thank you so much for giving me all of this time and talking flyers with me i'm really curious to see what this team is going to do it seems like the makings of a team that can be a strong contender for years to come so hopefully they don't they don't blow it hopefully not thanks for uh, thanks for having me yeah thanks again have a good night Thanks so much again to Charlie O'Connor for taking all of that time to discuss the Flyers with me. This was a really fun interview, and I got to tell you, it really flew by. I, I, we started at 5 p.m., and then next thing I knew, it was 6. I was like, oh, man, I got to wrap this up. We covered so many players, and this team, very exciting. Like Fantasy-wise, there are so many people that could potentially be worth rostering on your teams next year. So hopefully, we've given you a bit of a leg up of making sure you're aware of all these people, including Joel Farabee, who might be a pleasant surprise, according to Charlie's prediction. By the way, another thing I was looking at, the Flyers sure did have an amazing draft in 2015 where they got both Ivan Provorov and Travis Konechny, who may end up being two of their best players over the next few years. That draft overall was so stacked. McDavid, Eichel, Marner, Rantanen, Barzal, Besser, Konechny, I've said Aho, Kyle Connor. All these forwards went into the 2015 draft. Then the defensemen, like there's Provorov, then there was Wierenski right after Thomas Shabbat came later. I wonder if after it's all said and done many years from now, we're going to be looking at 2015 as one of the best drafts of all time. You know, the first defenseman who got taken in that draft wasn't Provorov, Wierenski, or Thomas Shabbat. It was Noah Hannafin. Uh, I don't know. He's okay. But I wonder if he's even going to crack the top five D in this draft when it's all said and done. Anyway, just a little walk back by memory lane. I guess you could listen to the Steve Laidlaw podcast. He's been breaking down drafts. I guess it'll be a while before he redrafts 2015. Uh, okay. Anyway, yeah, 
This is a fun chat. Thanks again, Charlie. Thanks again to you, the listeners, for sticking with us during this summer series, doing this 31 Beats. It's been really fun for me to be able to talk to all of these really smart people. And of course, I do it because of the support of the listeners of Keeping Carlson and of course, the support of the patrons of Keeping Carlson who keep this show going. So thank you so much to everyone who's been supporting us during this time. If you want to join our patron community, uh, just a buck we're asking for a month to give you whatever perks we have to throw, uh, including entry into our patron-only Facebook group where we're having some fun conversations. We do a monthly patron cast. I guess we're going to be due for that in a couple of weeks. Uh, so if you're interested, keepincarlson.com slash patron. We also wouldn't mind a five-star review on iTunes if you'd be so kind. But okay, enough of that. Let's cue the outro music. I'm going to go ahead and read you the credits for this show. So this episode of Keeping Carlson was presented by Dauber Hockey and supported by our patrons. Logos by Brandon Weeb. Outro music by Pat Roach. And this episode was researched with help from Dauber Hockey, Frozen Tools, Dauber Prospects, Cat Friendly, Elite Prospects, Roto World, The Athletic, and mainly... It wasn't researched by me. It was researched by Charlie O'Connor, who was fantastic. And again, you could follow him on Twitter at CharlieO underscore Con, C-O-N-N. Again, that's linked in the show notes. So hope you enjoyed this Flyers episode. I'm hard at work trying to wrangle more beat writers to close out our 31 beat series. So stay tuned until the next time we chat. Keep on keeping Carl song. <laughs>